Welcome to SlayerFest 98. I'm Ian Martin. I'm Nick G. I'm Ian Carlos Crawford. And I am Nick W. And today we are here to talk Angel Season 2, Episode 5, Dear Boy. Yay! Um, before we get into the episode, I wanted to give my quick uh, spiel about our Patreon. If you want to support this podcast, you can support us over at patreon.com slash slayerfest98. And uh, you get a ton of bonus content. We've been covering Harley Quinn, Firefly, going to be going into Batman the Animated Series, X-Men the Animated Series, and having some random Buffy episodes. Uh, Some of the Buffy 25th anniversary episodes go over there. We have watch-alongs and Zoom calls, and any and all support is much appreciated. But now we'll get into the episode. Uh, Nicholas, what did you think overall of this episode? Um, I do like this episode. I will admit that the beginning of the Darla arc isn't necessarily my favorite. Um, but I did like this episode. I liked especially the ending when we finally get like a conversation. If I remember correctly, that's when Buffy is finally mentioned. Um, it's, it's a decent filler episode. (laughs) Um, Ian, what'd you think? Uh, I have two reviews, I think. (laughs) Uh, the first review is when watching this in the context of the season arc, uh, when you watch it kind of in a row, you know, picking up one episode after the other, it's really fun to see things that have been building up kind of coming to a head. Uh, I, I find this episode pretty captivating. However, today I watched it completely out of context, not having watched most of the rest of the season in a little while and wow is it dreary (laughs) real real dreary not a lot of fun and some of the jokes uh given the context of the rest of the season specifically untouched and how it uh positions some of that stuff uh feel uncomfortable but we can get into it (laughs) uh nick what'd you think um you know I'm i'm on the same page with ian I've been watching, sort of rewatching season two. Um, this episode didn't do it for me itself, but I do know that better stuff is coming. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it did satisfy the psycho ex-girlfriend need in me. Like, I just, I'm also <laughs> suffering for those stories. And Darla, in her quote-unquote human form, uh, you know, it's giving that. <laughs> you know, I think, I think if we, the audience, hadn't been told that like Darla was back like officially. I think if there had been like a mystery, whether it was just like, you know, oh, this woman does look like Darla, but we haven't seen her in present day. So it could just be something weird. The episode would have worked better. Like, I think that's the big, like where it doesn't work because it's just annoying because we're watching everyone doubt Angel and we know that it is Darla. Like we know that we've yeah. known that since, you know, yeah. the end of last season, I mean, I think the dreaming stuff works, but I do think it would have almost worked better if, like, he was having dreams about her, and then there was this random woman that, like, we didn't know if she was Darla or not, and she, you know, clearly is Julie Benz, but, like, if they played it up, like, just had it, like, the only perspective we had of her was her being, like, no, and, like, running to her husband and not knowing who he is, I think would have made this work more. Oh, okay. So you know what? Let me <laughs> let me say something. I get a lot of the Darla stuff a little bit confused. And I remember the end of this episode and, and you saying that her running to her husband, that just reminds me. I do like this episode. This is the the <laughs> the, the Dieta Kramer yes. episode. Yeah, yeah when you when yeah, you called it when you called it filler, <laughs> I was surprised. Uh I was I wasn't gonna say anything, but uh, it feels uh 
Nicholas, Very unfiller to me. I did not I, want to call you out on not doing mm. your homework, but. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, because like, because I'm so mixed up with the time zones. Like I did it again. Like when you messaged me and you were like, are you running behind? I was literally sitting down on my couch to rewatch the episode. <laughs> so we're good. We're good. I'm there. I'm there. The brain is caught up. So Ian, I'm, I am curious. What are your like, this is your first season two episode, which uh, it's been a while since we fucking recorded. It's been so long, right? <laughs> yeah, I missed it. It's, it's uh, good to be yeah. chatting again. Yeah. Um, also, did not plan this, but this is the Ian's and Nick's episode. Uh, <laughs> everyone here is the same name. <laughs> Yay. Well, I appreciate it because I'm terrible with names. And with four people here, I only have to remember one other name besides my own. Yeah, so, that's right. Uh, pretty solid. <laughs> Those are pretty good odds of like getting the name correct. Um yeah, uh, Ian, I'm curious what what do you think of season two? Again, it's it's <laughs> it's it's hard to quantify because there's sort of the my initial impression of Angel that I had when I was first watching Buffy for the first time hit Angel season one and was doing the hot swap uh, oh, right. back and forth. In which case, you're watching Buffy season five, which opens bright and sunny and saturated and presumably. For most people, some people came to Angel cold, uh, no pun right. intended, but some people came to Angel like the f- uh, never having watched Buffy. But for the most part, I would think uh, a large portion of the fandom came over from that show. Yeah. And Buffy is bright, sunny, saturated, funny, fun, uh, especially the early part of season five with the replacement and um, yeah. uh, 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 all of those episodes. And I found the swap to this season of Angel, the when good angels or when good vampires go bad season, really a drag, um, yeah. Yeah. really slow, really hard to watch. It's incredibly dark. Um, and that just wasn't my thing. Buffy is this thing that hooked me. And it's this fun, joyful, until it isn't uh, <laughs> show. But even when it isn't, it's more... Uh, sort of existential dread and darkness in a way that I identify with in Buffy season six, as opposed the, to the dialogue still peppy, right? Like the dialogue. Exa- is still, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, they had that down. And, um, I think even now the show has at the end of season one, gone away from episodic to arc episodes. And other than the Tim Minear episodes in this season with, are you now or have you ever and Darla and, uh, uh, reprise and, uh, epiphany, I find this this season a little plot heavy and a little searching for identity, but there are m- moments of punctuating brilliance. Seeing the the st- stuff that Drew went through, seeing Angel saying, "Am I learning?" You know, David's uh, Irish accent has been finally downgraded from offensive to just pretty kind of okay. Like <laughs> it's starting to come together. It's start it's starting to come together, uh, but. In writing about uh, Reprise and Epiphany, though, um, which all of this leads to, are two of the most important episodes of television for me ever uh, in any series, in any piece of media consumption. Uh, All of that leading to the scene between Kate and Angel in the courtyard. You know, and this is all, these are all necessary steps to get there, even if I, I don't find them very fun. So... Yeah. Sorry, that, that was kind of all over the map. No, no, no. I, Ian, I always like, I, we are two very different Ians because you, Nick and Ian, I, I think I was telling Ashley, our editor, hi, Ashley, um, that like you two would definitely have like 
the same very smart person brain spot on the podcast because I'm very much like Buffy's hair is pretty and you're like here's what it relates to and it's a metaphor for it. I'm like yes sure <laughs> so I always appreciate your uh intellectual well and uh, and of all the things i mean angel's big on especially with the uh in the first season angel's very big on the greek stuff and all of that and this is the without spoiling uh, stuff that comes later on down the line this is the oedipal episode you know Ooh. uh darla I, I i i always thought about it was a weird line but when darla's playing with the scales of justice and she says god i could eat his eyeballs that's a reference to oedipus uh oh, dear shit. boy i didn't i did not pick up on that <laughs> yeah i thought that was weird but didn't connect <laughs> she she's clearly established here as a mother figure for him that he is also sleeping with dear boy she's his uh, he's her child she feeds him she uh when she turned angel she did so by um slashing her breast she breastfed angelus into existence and uh, like so i i I don't know if someone in the writer's room was a fan of oedipus or if they kind of (laughs) just discovered that they had all of the pieces and were like Hey, you want to lean into it, but don't lean into Oedipus. I mean, <laughs> it's so icky. That's the other thing about this stuff is it's it, it just is so icky. Anyway, I'll I'll stop. I'm sorry. I don't know if this is worse or better, but like I like that it's icky. I'm like, yeah, give Ugh. me more fucking like <laughs> demented. Well, but I but just talking about, I mean, I I there's stuff later in the show that is much like, more worse. self-evidently edible and, and I, <laughs> I i didn't realize how far back some of that was set up and i think yeah. that i mean greenwald was the writer on this one and and who knows if, you never know if it was him or joss but right yeah the clearly a, an, an oedipus fan because this is oedipus the episode <laughs> okay Nix, did either of you pick up on that? Because I sure didn't. But now that you've said it, I'm like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I'm going to be real honest. I don't even know what Oedipus is other than the end of the buff, uh, the puppet show when Buffy's on stage and she's like, Oedipus, Oedipus, Oedipus. That's, that's the extent of my knowledge. <laughs> Honestly, that's the best version of Oedipus you could be familiar with. So, <laughs> Like you're talking uh, think- and I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh, so you're saying that Darla is mother. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. She should have a pride float. Right. Got it. <laughs> um, I'm just, I'm sitting here regretting the fact that I called her a crazy ex-girlfriend like two minutes ago, because now what? <laughs> I guess you all know a lot more about me. <laughs> like, ooh, I've discovered something. Don't love it. <laughs> um, listen, no judgment. Um, it's weird because I remember hating this episode, I think the last time I watched it, but I didn't hate it this time. I don't know. I th- It does have a little bit of slowness to it. I think this, like, the first maybe third of season two, because we get, mm-hmm. like, two different arcs, right? Because I love the Drusilla-Darla arc. But then that, like, fully goes away. And then we get the Pylea arc, which, like, eh, I'm curious how I'll feel about it going through it for the podcast. But, like, the le- I do think the lead-up to the Darla stuff is, like, like you said, Ian, it's, like, the episode doesn't fully do that much on its own, but it is important later on. Yeah, it just is very, until they get to the water tower, it's very plotty and inelegant. Um, yeah. It just creaks. Uh, Angel begins telling everyone about 
the fact that he's been having these dreams and oh my god there's a vision and now we never circle back and talk about it again <laughs> you know there's just a lot of convenient plotty bits to just kind of that feel that don't feel organic they feel a little artificial until the scene between angel and darla in the water tower which is you know it's masterful it's wonderful yeah julie benz is so good she's such yeah. a good actor i so this episode we the last few episodes do this a lot where it's like uh oh, wes and cordy are bickering which i'm not sure like I don't know, because right then, in once the middle of the season hits, they're like fine and they're like going off on their own. So I find the bickering a little tiresome, mm. but I do love Cordelia being annoyed with someone. Um, we learn that Angel's been sleeping a lot. Um, she jokes, is he having a growth spurt? We also learn they're running out of money, which is like a plot that they drop or do all three of you, I think, know the show better than I do. Do they ever address, like, do they solve that or do they just drop that plot of them running out of money? I think they drop it. I think they drop it. And then if I might be recalling this entirely incorrectly, seasons later, when Jasmine comes along, there there's some n- nod to like, oh, we're so popular now. Everybody <laughs> hangs out at this hotel. <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's that. And then I'm trying to remember, I think it is in season three, because yeah, Fred is around. It's when Angel Investigations is like really starting to pick up business and the phone's ringing off the hook. And, and then when Fred has the episode where she has to solve the puzzle, um, they get the big suitcase full of money. So I think, I guess maybe that addresses it, but like they've been apparently struggling for with money for like a year and a half at that point. (laughs) Yeah. I think the implication is that when Fred comes on board and, and joins the team that some of the money was clear up. Yeah. But they milk it as a plot point until then. They really do. Yeah, they really do. And like, so uh, Nick and Nick were on for, um, are you now, or have you ever been Ian? And Ian, did you know this? That is it? I think it's Tim Minear or David Greenwald. I forget who wrote that. That's a Tim Minear episode. Right. Yeah. The, the, the big, the thing I found when I was writing about this season are the, the big heavy hitters of the season arc are almost exclusively Tim episodes, um, including the trial, which is a co-written with David Greenwald episode. But all the pieces that feel like they were written by Tim Minear were written by Tim Minear. And all the other (laughs) ones were written by David Greenwald, I found out um, after the fact. Hmm. Well, so I read while we were recording, I read, I found like a trivia where he said that in his mind, that money Angel sent back to wherever she stole it from. And I was like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? Like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I feel like, I, one, that bank is fine. It has been so long. And two, use that money, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think he said, I, I remember that quote. And I think it's just, there's, it's not text. You know, yeah. They, yeah. they never say for certain uh, how it happened. So my thought is he always, he kept it to buy the hotel. Yeah, I, that's, I, that's how I always like, made it in my brain. But then in this episode, how they're talking about money problems. I'm like, Oh, that episode was a few episodes ago. Yeah. Um, but I spent the bag of cash. 
listen, I understand. Sometimes you need to treat yourself and it's an unhealthy amount. And then you're like, oops, I spent too much money. And did you buy a hotel? <laughs> Surprise, everyone. That's Slayerfest New Studio. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I did buy a commissioned diorama of the Angel Hotel. So it's kind of a <gasps> Oh, my God. <sighs> oh, that's going to be sweet. I meant to, Nicholas, I meant to text you last night. I finally like to set it up and it's gorgeous. I'll send you all a picture later. Uh, so yeah, Please. we got Angel wakes up and he's like sleepy. I do like sleepy, grumpy Angel. She has like tea. She, yeah, we don't really talk about much till she gets her vision. And this opening goes on for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. If, I was like, wait, did I miss the credits? No, I didn't miss the credits. Okay. Um, and then when they went down to the thing, I was like, wait, that's where Angel and Darla go. When, what episode is that? And it was this episode where they go down there later. I also didn't quite understand what it was. I know, like, she had a vision of the thing that was in the wall, but then, like, once they kill it, the hooded people are walking out with them. Correct. Well, I, I think it's, she says it's a thrall demon, and the thrall demon is making, uh, this is, I'm, I'm probably over reading, but I think, you know, that's, that's my jam. Is reading too much into things. Um, That's both why you're professionally, here. both professionally and personally. But uh, <laughs> call it super text. <laughs> the uh, uh, she says it's a thrall demon. The, the thrall demon is making both sides fight against each other, and I think the comparison is that Angel is in Darla's thrall uh, oh. right now in the course of the episode, and Darla is seducing both uh, Lindsay and Angel. And making them fight against each other, I think structurally is what was intended there, but it's just kind of goes away and just, you know, it's a symbol with no uh, drama or meaning, a symbol with no purpose. Yeah, it feels like a, a set piece right. for like kind of no reason, because it wouldn't have mattered yeah. if him and Darla went down there and he hadn't been there before. Like, all right. It mostly just sets up the water tower set and Angel's love of convents. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um he gives them the keys. We, we, what? We have three different like scenes in this opening. Um, he goes to whatever market plaza shopping center that looks like the same one Cordelia passed out at in the season one finale. Um, and he spots Darla. And in my head, this is when he confronted her. I was like, oh, we get that pretty early on. But it is not. But the like her the image of her walking in the red dress, I feel like is like a very memorable image of Darla. Yep. Right. I like that scene. I like yeah. it. Yeah. I don't know. There's something like strangely creepy about it i just yes. like that she's fucking with him and she's just like silently walking by like mm. yes and i mean i also <laughs> i like the, the little moments where he's like supposed angel's supposed to be present and then just slowly starts to fall asleep and she's like riding him and then he just snaps out of it yeah. <laughs> and yeah. nobody around him has any idea what's going on <laughs> yeah because he like full-on has like a short sex dream while like cordelia and wesley are like investigating. <laughs> you know, I laugh at that joke. I, anytime David gets to play humor, I, I think you can tell Angel is actually him playing against type most of the time. Yeah. But also untouched positioned what Darla is doing to him as sexual assault. Yeah. That's the, the whole comparative metaphor of that episode. And so I, I have mixed feelings about it. David's very funny and I like the comedy and yet it's sort of like playing that for humor now feels like going back to the well that you said we're not going to go back to with, with that. So it's just mixed feelings. Yeah, there are a couple things in the dynamics between the characters. So one, in the episode before this, they established that I guess canonically vampires can get boners, which I've <laughs> had this argument with people and it, it just always gets too into the weeds about like, 
bodily mechanics and whether vampires <laughs> have blood in their body. But uh, it, there are some some weird dynamics. So like they establish that like Darla is short circuiting his entire system. Right. I'm still confused as to why it takes him so long to say something or for them to really, they keep talking about how he's tired, but like he's very clearly like acting weirder and weirder. Yeah. And there's, there's precedent here too, for his dreams are deeply meaningful warnings of something Um, in somnambulist. He was having dreams about the murders of uh, that were actually occurring. So his dreams matter. I always, the more I've, I've gone through the season, the more I find it, a little plot convenient that he doesn't bring it up mm-hmm. early. Oh. And then when he, do, he does, there's a vision and then they don't circle back. Yeah. There's a bunch of that, but yeah. you know, kind of building on your other point about how uh, the implication of sexual assault makes this not age very well. Mm-hmm. So rewatching this every time that Cordy has a vision, she like strikes out with this like 1920s, like, Oh, I say, and then she faints very dramatically and it it sort of puts her in this uh like damsel in distress trope that doesn't really read and then just the way that the different women are playing off of each other does it those there are things in here i guess i'll say there are uh characteristics of this episode that feel like they haven't aged very well i mean i do feel like that kind of applies to a lot of the things in the buffyverse um yeah sure but i mean (laughs) It's aged better than like sitcoms. <laughs> Anytime I rewatch like The Office, which I do, I mean, I know people like to hate on it, but like it's still funny, whatever. That they're like every episode, I'm like, we had to make that joke. Okay, sure. Um, like I I'm a Seinfeld gal through and through, and that's like my nighttime viewing background. And oddly, Seinfeld has aged better than The Office, and I don't understand how that's possible. They're like, you know, they're in New York. They, I mean, it's still, you know, mostly white people, but they actually do encounter different, you know, uh, different, they go to like the Puerto Rican Day Parade in the one episode. And it's like not a joke about Puerto Rican folk. It's like a joke that they're stuck in traffic and like Kramer gets robbed by a gay couple. And it's not a joke that it's a gay couple. It's a joke that he was robbed. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, so what you're saying is that, uh, you really want to see an episode of Buffy written by Larry David. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <That's- laughs> now. Now yeah. I'm saying that out loud. That actually seems like kind of brilliant. I feel like that would be up all our alleys. <laughs> yes. I feel like he would be able to get Spike really well. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh wait. In, in, in regards to like Angel, not, telling people what's going on. I think I might've mentioned this when we were talking about, or, you know, have you ever been, but there was something, I don't remember who it was by, but I was reading a while ago and they were talking about how in like movies and television shows, how say you have something that's an hour long, realistically, the episode would end up being like five to 10 minutes long. If people just opened their mouths and told people what was going on. And right. it's just like a common theme across media and stuff like that because typically you know oh buffy uh, you seem a little bit weird what's going on nothing and then you don't find out until six months later whereas the entire season would have been probably resolved had the person just said it so i feel like that i mean it's not an excuse the writing could be tighter but it is just something that seems to be prevalent a lot in media yeah no that is true i mean i mean i know not not an apologist in the way of bad things but in the way of plot i am a lost apologist right. um and 
that show absolutely would have been half a season if they actually all talked about what was going on. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I do remember watching that weekly being like, why the fuck isn't John Locke telling them he saw that ghost of a smoke monster two minutes ago and now they're eating dinner like everything's fine. And yeah, that would have made the plot not plot. Um, so after Angel saw Darla walking through, I think it's like a promenade, then we jump to where there's like a new client that has come in. Okay, Ian, you mentioned this. This is, and I think Nick's, well, you were both on for Are You Now? And that's a pretty like straightforward plot. Like we're, we're doing the hotel, that's the plot. But like, so Untouched, I recorded for yesterday. This and Untouched, it's like they're still trying to do a quote unquote a plot with a mystery, but the a plot ends up being like the C plot. Cause we're doing like five other plots that are mm-hmm. overall more important. And that's like, I, I even forgot about this other plot, even though I have notes on it and I just watched the episode. I'd already forgotten about this other plot that like really doesn't matter. And I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's like, well, this is their job and showing us like angels fucking up their gigs, but I do like how ridiculous it is. And he's like, my wife's often abducted by aliens, but... And then when Angel <laughs> walks in, he's like, is my wife cheating on me? And I think he's just like, yeah, probably. <laughs> well, it's, ni- it's nice to see the business continuing to go on. Boy, do the wife and her side piece have some of the worst innuendo. Uh, I'm still getting kidnapped until four o'clock. I'd like to take you somewhere and conduct my own probe. Get it? (laughs) You know, like, I don't know. (laughs) Just a little exhausting in a very plot heavy episode. Yeah. Yeah. I will say though, that I feel like, although the whole like, uh, alien fake alien abduction, wife cheating subplot is so to, at least when you're just watching this episode seems very almost meaningless. I do feel like in regards to how we were referencing earlier, how Cordelia and Wesley are bickering a lot. It is a subplot, but I do feel like it sets up what happens later on in the season when angel goes rogue and it causes the rest of the group to actually become closer Mm -hmm. because then nobody is bickering that's when gun and wesley finally form their friendship with one another and cordelia almost takes charge of the group in a way so i feel like it's a it's a subplot here but it does have meaning later on which is kind of interesting because like although the first other than you know are you now or have you ever been like the first part of the season like before darla shows up and everything like that is a little bit slow to me and it's a little bit harder to distinguish the episodes and i get I find the bickering a little bit grating, but then later on it sort of switches to where when Angel's just acting like a dick for a good part of the season, I find that grating. Cause I'm oh, like, yeah. you're the hero. I'm like, you're annoying the shit out of me. I don't want to deal with this. So I don't know. It's just weird. I like, I like how it switches it up from the first half of the season to the second half. Oh, all right. Nick, uh, do you, what do you think? <laughs> I don't have any thoughts that are nearly as deep as that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, maybe there's some something to be said for uh, my mind wandering d- during some of these scenes. But I will say what brought me back during this scene is that <laughs> so they're staked out in the in the hotel lobby over, you know, like l- listening into this conversation between would be lovers. And then Cordelia steps in frame in this like the best I could say is Ren Fair costume of a waitress outfit. <laughs> I, I can't get over the fact that they're like. You know, you re- we don't. This is the, one of the few times we get to see them do PI work that doesn't involve demons and yeah. stakes and and swords and all that. 
And so this is like, this is their shot to be like a real grown up, like private investigator, you know, and be real undercover. And then Cordelia is dressed like a clown. Um, and I find that like, even though they're trying to be, and like Cordelia says so many times, like, this is our one shot. This is a paying customer. We could do it for real. And she's kind of the one who would blow it in my mind. <laughs> dressed like a clown and it's funny because i feel like that's like a memorable outfit and i was like wait she only wears that for like five seconds in this episode (laughs) (laughs) i like the way she calls it out though and she's uh like after they get back to the hotel and uh, she says something about the outfit and she's like which says like uh something something i'm a whore (laughs) pet me please like please pet me i'm a whore But before we even get there, we get Angel being really weird with both of them. (gasps) When he smells Cordelia's hair, which I still don't fully understand. Other than like, is that foreshadowing that he's like attracted to her? Or is it just supposed to be like, look, he's weird because he's sleepy. I I think it's weird sleepy. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's weird sleepy. And I also think it's supposed to because like, if I remember correctly, later on in the episode or it's when he runs into Darla at the um, the other hotel that they're staking out. He says, if I remember, uh, he says something to her like, I know that it's you. I can smell you. So I feel like it's supposed to reference that, like he's sniffing her to make sure he's like trying to, you know, figure out his senses and like, am I actually smelling her? Like what's going on? But yeah, I mean, uh, being sleepy, but I will say that when he sniffs her hair, that is one of my favorite lines of the entire series when she's like personal bubble. (laughs) (laughs) I I like Wes walking in and being like, I've never talked with you man to man. Is it something I did? Because that's fucking me. (laughs) (laughs) Like puffing my chest and being like, I need to say something. My feelings are hurt. Um, the thing that bothers me, though, is that they really don't believe him. And I, this is like a problem with genre TV sometimes with storytelling when we're going to do like a plot where they don't, people don't believe a thing where it's like, okay, but why would we not believe that? Because wacky shit happens in this universe right. every fucking day. Yeah. So it's a little bit like, I get it because he is acting weird and like they know he hasn't been sleeping and I don't know, but it's like, just, I don't, it feels weird that they're so aggressively like, well, she's dead. No one ever comes back from the dead here. But I do like that. He's like between a clown and a hot dogs where I saw her. <laughs> that's pro- that's probably my favorite joke in the thing between the clown and the talking hot dog. Yeah. But it, the other thing that's funny to me is the uh, uh, just briefly touching on the abduction thing. Whenever a fantasy show needs to make something sound ridiculous, going to science fiction, you know, in a world with uh, hell dimensions and uh, demons and, uh, you know, oracles and powers that be and all of that, it's the aliens that are weird. That's right. the we- that's that's the weird thing. And there's. Uh, uh, I think it's shadow or yes. listening yeah. to fear. There's an alien. Yeah, there is. You You're know? right. <laughs> so it's not that unprecedented, although, uh, you know, uh, well, not that Angel would know about it. The show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. did that too once. And I like, I, I really like that show. And, you know, I did an episode about it. I never shut up about Ming-Na Wen being one of my favorite people I've interviewed. But season one of that show did like a plot line that I fucking hated because there was a woman that was like, telepathic and everyone was like well that's not real how could there be a telepath and i'm like are you kidding me like thor and hulk exist in this universe yeah telepath doesn't really seem far off or uh, mantis uh yeah yeah, it's it's fine like i said i think that's that's why this episode feels creaky plotty as opposed to uh, there's not a 
uh, a central idea until the final scene between yeah. Yeah. uh Darla and Angel. It's just and this happens on Buffy too. Sometimes um Buffy season 4 the Iron Team and uh Goodbye Iowa are creaky plotty episodes uh, where it's like we need the pieces to be at this point at a certain point in the episode but the you know uh, the reasons to get there feel a little contrived at times Ian you've mentioned both Buffy episodes that I mix up Shadow and Listening to Fear and then right. Goodbye <laughs> Iowa and No Iron Team I have like those are like the same episodes to me <laughs> yeah yeah so we oh then we get Darla and Lindsay like vamping around his dark office room And like this scene is like, again, slow, but Darla has some good lines on this scene. Mm -hmm. I like when she says, like, everyone betrays you. That's not what eats you up on a long winter's night. And he says, what does? And she says, missed opportunities. Um, And like you mentioned, she says, God, I could eat his eyeballs. Like the I say this a lot about a lot of women in the Buffy verse, but like a lesser actor, that line would have been stupid. Right. But she I think she sells it. (laughs) Julie Benz has this ability. I feel like, she, I mean, she does it specifically for Darla. Cause like, I, I mean, I've watched all of Dexter, so I've seen her in that, but she, there is something about the, or her portrayal of Darla on Angel versus on Buffy. She just, and not in like a weird, creepy way. She exudes sexy in a way that is not like obvious. And just like when she's talking to Lindsay, it makes sense to me. Like she, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, she's not being flirtatious. It's just manipulative the way that she does it. It's so easy for her to do it. And I'm, I'm just captivated by every single word out of her mouth, the way that she does that, because it's like, once you've obviously, you know, completed her, her storyline and season three and everything like that, and you go back and you just rewatch it, you can just see how she's just moving everybody around like chess pieces. Yes. Yes, it's. I love it. I think she's like almost like a cat playing with things, like just yes. like, like batting everyone around. She doesn't really give a shit where everything lands, and is just like, let's see. I don't know. We'll see. Let's create chaos, and I appreciate that. <laughs> Nick, I'm curious. Do you? What do you think of of Darla yeah, in general? Like, yeah. I mean, I still, you know, I was thinking of this when I was watching this episode. Um, there were a lot of actresses like Julie Benz in, in the '90s and early aughts, mm. and. I like her the best for exactly the reasons we're talking about. Like she, it when we'll get to the sort of the, you know, the big scene uh, in the reservoir later, but she can be sweet and devastating at the same time. And it, and it both come off equally as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of people, you know, a lot of her contemporaries, like I'm thinking of half of the cast of Beverly Hills, 90210, like (laughs) they could not sell anything. Uh, and they're all <laughs> annoying. And Julie Benz is different. Could not sell anything. <laughs> it's so brutal. I love it. Um, yeah, I thought it was this episode, but it's, it must be, it's soon, I think. When she says to him, like, they're like, I think it's when they kiss. And she's like, it's not me you want, it's Angel. Like, she knows that Lindsay wants to fuck Oh, God, Angel. that is oh. so... Yeah. Is it me you want to screw or is it Angel? That line is so devastating. And like, again, she doesn't give a shit, right? She's just being like, yeah, you probably do. I don't care. Yeah, she's a, I think uh, it's the episode Darla that sets her up as a, um, as a prostitute in the new world. Yeah. And uh, one of my patrons talked about how 
important that was for sort of understanding the, her character in the show mm. in that she, her relationship with the, the man is to have a patron who then sort of like as angel does gives her fine views and takes care of her. But she is actually in the position of power over them the entire time, manipulating them uh, with angel feeding him and doing all of that. It's, it's a constant state of uh, manipulation the entire time. And um, it is, it's really fun to watch, but that's the line I always think of when you think about sweet Julie Ben's being devastating is uh, after angel has just murdered his whole, whole family in the prodigal mm. her saying um, your victory over him took but a minute, but his defeat of you will last lifetimes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and she says it with a smile. So good. Yeah. Um, then we jump to Kate, one of my least favorite characters uh-huh. in the verse. Also, I don't know, like, not only are they like, she sucks, but they like style her so poorly. And like, ugh, I feel like they're doing her dirty. E, may, I, may I interrupt for one sec? Yeah. Sorry, the thing I, I just wanted to double back on was uh, um, I lost the the thread, which was Ju- um, Darla's manipulation of Angel, seeing that Angel lacks or desperately wants a parental figure mm-hmm. and stepping into the role of his Oedipal mother the entire <laughs> time. My dear boy, like the to, to perceive in Angel what he's lacking or what he desperately desires, which is an affectionate parent, and then to step in and give that to him for eternity. And not only that, but undercut uh, her, his father after she, after angel has killed him and said uh, his defeat of you will last lifetimes just to reinforce her control over him is a really powerful. Uh, it's one of my, the structure of their relationship, I think is pretty brilliant. Um, anyway, I, di- I didn't mean to inter- interrupt. Oh, I'm no, sorry. No, no actually I, just to add to that, I think one of the, pieces of world building which is why i think these shows do hold up in a lot of ways is you could just run with the vampire trope and like oh you know hot cold whatever they they these characters have depth and i want to say like darla in a flashback that will happen soon we that's when we learn that she was a prostitute and of course and um (laughs) Sorry, it's a cat. Uh, we learned she's a prostitute, and you're like, and that's when I'm like, oh, she learned as an act of survival, even though she was dying of syphilis. Like we, she has been frozen in time, essentially, from mm. this moment where, like, she just learned how to use people and, and yeah. learned how to tell them exactly what they wanted to hear or how to crush them, and it is a skill she maintains throughout the rest of her vampirehood. I feel like that has to be also why the master chose her of all people. Yeah. Like he didn't just turn, like he didn't just feed on her. He turned her a prostitute dying of, what was she dying of like syphilis or something? Yeah. Yeah. Like of all people to turn, he picks her. So I feel like that's telling too, that he probably saw that in her. And, and and plus like you, you kind of see that even later on when she chooses angel or Angelus over him, when she just ups and leaves him, like she's, she wants to be in control. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. It is like, and that's kind of why, like, cause right before she leaves him, she is upset when he's like, I never loved you. She is fucking pissed. But then she is able to, like you said, she leaves and she leaves on her own terms and she's like, Oh no, goodbye kiss. And it's kind of like, well, fuck you. I'm leaving and I'm going to leave you wanting more. 
Um, and she does, even though he just said, I never loved you. She's still able to make it like, how can I make this about me? And she does. And you know what? I respect that. <laughs> All right. So we get Kate. We learn that she's been like moved to wherever. Kate is such a, I don't know. I feel like there was potential, but I. Yeah, she feels like a character that they had plans for and then they pivoted story wise, but she had taken up so much screen time already that they didn't they couldn't just like abandon her like they did with like David Nabbit. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So she like she's just constantly in the background being a pain in the ass. Yeah, and, and oh it's boy. irritating. <laughs> oh boy, is she a pain in the ass in this episode? Then we yeah, then we get the mission where the like we said, the cocktail dress and the stupid puns. <laughs> And he spots. Okay. Um, any of you, so all three of you who are smarter than me, is what the fuck is Dieta Kramer? Like, that feels like such a specific name that it should be a reference to something, but is it? No, I'm I not aware know. of a reference. Right? Yeah. It does, doesn't it seem like a very specific name to just be like a throwaway fake moniker? It does. Wait, what part of the episode are we in right now? When he when he like confronts Darla and she she says she's not Darla she's Dieta Kramer, in the hotel. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. It definitely honestly it sounds kind of black to me. Uh, maybe that's just where my mind goes. I'm like, ooh, Dieta. There's an apostrophe in there. There's at least two T's. <laughs> Nick, that's like when I say things with a stupid Spanish accent, and it's like, Ian, that's not a Spanish <laughs> word. And I'm like, oops. <laughs> well, technically, I, I the the only person that I have ever met who is named Dieta, she was black. So. Okay, I felt that in my soul. Um, <laughs> See, Nick, you knew. <laughs> I, I I knew that that four hundred year old English woman, really a sassy black woman. And and the spelling, according to the Buffy uh, fandom wiki, is uh, capital D, lowercase e, capital E, T T A, yeah. D Etta. That feels like an inside joke on the writer's part, but it really- whatever it re- is a reference to, I don't know. I, I really felt like I was like, is it a literary reference that I'm not getting? Because it's just so specific, but whatever. It doesn't matter. That's her fake name. And it doesn't matter after this episode. They don't believe her, which I was annoyed. And then I remembered that Cordelia didn't actually ever meet Darla because she dies pretty early on in season one. And even if she did, I would buy that. Like, she doesn't recognize her. Sure. Because Cordelia's seen a lot of vampires. Cordelia and Wes are worried. They call gun. And then we start getting the other plot of the episode, which is like... Or like set piece, I guess. I don't know what you would call it, but like we find out what their plan is to get Angel. Lindsay and Darla have set up a fake house with a fake husband. Yeah. Uh, Nicholas, then uh, what do we think of that? (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love everything about it. I love the interaction between Darla and the fake husband. Cause she's like ready to snap his neck at any given. She's like, shut up. I, I love it. Um, I especially love when they occasionally will add in like just extremely unrealistic campy things like angel somehow, I have no idea how he does this comes down from the tree and grabs Darla and pulls her up and nobody <laughs> sees this or hears this. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so silly. I love it. Also, we, we, we went past this. There is something that both Buffy and, and both shows do is where sometimes a person has a power and sometimes they don't. Yeah. And apparently oh, sure. in this episode, Angel has the ability to smell that Wesley had sex with a bleach blonde the night before. <laughs> and I'm very curious as to how that happens. <laughs> 
That's an I interesting th- little uh, like. There's an interesting detail. The the there are hints of Wesley's competence, professional competence, uh, throughout the season. They uh, they. This is why I hate bumbling Wesley as a yeah. joke that the show returns to. It's starting to to uh, get away from it now in this season. But Wesley falling over and Wesley making, you know, being the, it's a, there's a specific archetype that it is. And I don't remember the name of it, but it's, it's the bumbly, soft British, uh, man. And, uh, but spread throughout the entire thing are hints that Wesley really knows what he's doing. He's really competent. He's really good with the gun for no reason whatsoever. He, when he needs to step up and save Angel, he does it with complete confidence. And his, uh, as much as they play up that stereotype and make fun of him a lot, and Cordy makes fun of him a lot, that little detail of him having presumably a one night stand or whatever again shows a certain sort of confidence and self assuredness that somehow is like they're still getting away with making fun of him as silly, bumbly, whatever. Right. Yeah. Know, both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, he's either really good at all of these things, which he is, which we see the evidence of on screen, or he's this other thing, but I can't wait. I mean, I love dark Wesley. Dark Wesley is a ton yeah. of fun. And I love that. He's one of the tragic characters of the show. Um, but uh, I, I just, Watching these episodes, I can't wait until Bumbling Wesley just falls away. Yeah. My exact thought when they make that, when Cordy makes that joke about him hooking up with anybody, I was like, oh, yeah, this is them sowing the seeds of Dark Wesley, Demon Slayer, Five O'Clock Shadow, Leather Jacket Wesley. Like, he's coming. Yeah, but that's all there. No, that's all there already. You know, mm-hmm. they just, you know, Wesley's biggest enemy is himself. But the show sort of still is in a space of validating how silly he is, or or rather co-signing how silly he is. Yeah, it doesn't. That's because that's because of who he was on Buffy. Yeah, that he was he was that character on Buffy, but then he needed to change into something more interesting over on Angel, and that right. metamorphosis is a little slow for my tastes because I love where he ends up, but um, it just takes forever to get there. Yeah, I wish they would have dropped the bumbling stuff a little bit early oh my God. on. Yeah. Because like to me, like as much as I love his progression as a character, I never particularly cared for the fact that, oh, he suddenly became Dark Wesley because he had his throat slit. Right. Like all of those elements mm-hmm. were present prior to that happening. It just constantly got brushed under the rug because they were too busy making fun of him. And I'm like, I don't understand. Like you're making fun of somebody who has clearly proved himself time and time again. Like it's time to drop that. The joke. And it's, it's not that Alexis, it's not Alexis. Uh, Alexis plays comedy really well. I think um, the, the physical humor he's uh, very good at. It's the dissonance with that particular character that I find doesn't play for me. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, everyone will laugh in the Patreon discord. There's a joke that Ian brings up the episode. She all the time. And it's because Wesley falls three fucking times. I was waiting for you to bring it up. <laughs> I just, it makes me crazy because it's like, this isn't funny. And we're doing it three times. Like this man would be dead in this universe. If he is slipping that often around vampires and demons. Like I just, 
Or just like a sharp weapon in the library cage. (laughs) Yeah, there's a big pratfall coming up in the next episode when he slips on the mail. Uh, Him not being able to pull the knife out of his uh, ankle holster in uh, his first at parting gifts in uh, season one. Right. Yeah. It's again, I think Alexis is very good at comedy. It's just, it just, it gets old and doesn't work for that particular character. Cause there's so much evidence that he is this, he is something else. Yeah. It's the same thing with Giles too. Yes. Like we know yeah. that he has this dark background and he's capable of all this power and they have him bumbling and like dropping paperwork all the time. in like the first two seasons and I'm t- this does not match for me. Yeah. In, in a strange way though, it works a little bit better for me with Giles because it, with Giles, you it's almost played like an adopted affectation in uh, specifically in band candy when uh, he confronts Ethan for the first time. That that episode is all about masks becoming real, you know, yeah, the, the, them true. putting on masks and becoming those characters. In that scene, we realize Giles has been wearing a mask the entire show, and it slips away as he beats the hell out of Ethan uh, in order to tell me how to stop the spell. You know, so that works for me because Giles is making a, a deliberate decision to play to this sort of meek character as a as a choice rather than whatever it is with Wesley, like. It's, I think what it's supposed to be is like Wesley's lack of confidence, but lack of confidence doesn't make you ice skate on solid floors constantly all the time and fall over, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, um, ice skate is a very good way to put it. And, and, yeah, I like and, that way you just said, yeah. And he's shown to, like, he fences with Giles. It's not the, like he is completely uncoordinated and hasn't been physically trained. So I don't know. I've harped on it long enough. I bumbly Wesley is a, is a sticking (laughs) point with me. Do they ever in the, in angel ever address the fact that Wesley and Cordelia tried it for like a hot second before they, (laughs) uh, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He was not in high school and she still was. (laughs) Uh, Cause she says that he drooled on her. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah does that come back because there's like you know we were talking before about how they were bickering and now it's more of like bickering like an old married couple a little right. bit but yeah because that seems awkward yeah and also like i i guess i and we've said this a lot too we i you often forget how old cordelia is because they fully they like really age her up more so than the scoobies do on buffy so it feels like her and wesley are the same age and those actors clearly are in the same age range so it is like hard to hard to remember like oh wait they met and she was still in high school and that's when they first made out and he was like not a teacher but kind of a teacher <laughs> i mean i'm not saying this justifies the setup uh whatsoever but in the prom which is a couple episodes before becoming part not becoming uh graduation, graduation day, yeah. day they're at the dance Wesley says to Giles, uh, I wonder if I could ask Miss Cordelia. And he's, for God's sake, man, she's 18. And you have the maturity of a blueberry scone. Um, (laughs) So they go out of the way to, I suppose, legally set up that scene as not as disgusting as it actually is. They never confront the issue that, who is this guy just (laughs) hanging out at a high school? (laughs) They didn't hire another librarian. (laughs) 
Yeah, what is this, Giles's younger brother? Uh, yeah, but it's still it's it's icky. But they they did try to set it up. So yeah, yeah fair. I think I think that like they do that a lot in a couple times in season three of Buffy because they also have the moment between Buffy and Angel where she calls him out for the fact that he says that he fell in love with her when she was fifteen, and she's like, "If you take that literally, it's very gross." Yeah, <laughs> and then they just yeah. kind of hang on it, and they never address it again. I feel like that's they're they're the writers' way of sort of being like, "Yes, we're aware it's gross, but you can't pick on us if if we actually call it out." Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's like um, in uh, becoming part one when we see Angel first seeing Buffy for the first time. She's uh, got a lollipop, and is they're clearly <laughs> doing a low leader reference, mm. and I'm kind of like, no, no. No, no, that doesn't make it okay. You can't like point to it and go, ha ha, because you're still pointing to it. It's still there. You know, this is a very weird reference, but that's why I gave up on Glee because I remember being like, oh, this show's cute. Oh, it's fun. And then in like season two, in one of the episodes, I can't remember if it's, I think it's a Britney Spears episode, but it might be the Rocky Horror one. So if anyone was really into Glee, I'm probably going to misquote or something, but they're all having the same dream about whatever the thing is. It's either Rocky Horror or Britney. And they're all having music video dreams when they go to a dentist and he gives them the like laughing gas. And there's a scene when someone says, that doesn't make sense. Why would we all have the same dream? And then they laugh and move on. <laughs> and I remember being so I think so that's furious. the Britney episode. I, I think it is. As I was saying it, I was like, I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, because if that, they're recreating music videos, that's the Britney right. one. Yeah. Nicholas, are you a Gleek? Uh, for the first two seasons, or I well, I liked Glee up until they went to New York, and then I was like, Ugh. "God, when the hell was that?" I think like season three or four. Oh, really? Huh. I thought that was like the last seasons that What's Her Face lived in New York. Um, oh, also Nick, earlier um, when you were asking whether or not the, uh, they bring up the whole Wesley and Cordelia thing back in Sunnydale, they do it again in I I don't remember if it's the end of season three or beginning of season four when uh, she becomes part demon. And she, or she has like uh, the, the alternate reality episode where she has her own TV show or whatever. And then she sees Gunn and Wesley and like Wesley's missing an arm. She brings up the fact again that they had made out once before. Okay. <laughs> um, so then we get Kate being incredibly unhelpful and she goes to the Hyperion Hotel and <laughs> ooh, ooh, does she piss me off with everything that happens with her at the hotel. The thing that makes me angry is that, like, they know she knows, and she knows they know. They're still not really saying it, but she's pretending like she knows for a fact he's evil, even though he has helped her quite a few times since her father died. Yeah, this is pretty much the worst Uh, version of her. Yeah, Yeah, because you can't trust him, huh? (laughs) Who knew? Um, And fucking, I do love when she says, are you going to help yourselves? And they all just fold their arms at the same time. And then she fucking asks Gunn to see some ID and like, Jesus Christ. They have any priors? Right. At least that's a, like accurate, right? I feel like, <laughs> Jesus. Um, and I, the thing I can't tell is if like, because I mean, clearly she's unlikable, especially here, but I can't tell if that's on purpose. Like, I, are we supposed to hate Kate? Are we supposed to like, kind of feel bad because her shitty dad died. <laughs> like, I think we're supposed to feel bad, but none of us feel bad because they mm. just present her as being a bitch for yeah. no reason. Like, ugh. And it's unfortunate, too, because I think, like, the character itself had a lot of potential, and I yeah. really would have liked to, to have seen Angel be able to do stuff 
with an in with law enforcement yes. in a way. Yeah. I but think they just squandered it. And... It Because re- it really, yeah, it has potential. Like, you know, he can ask for backup or fucking whatever. Or if there is a human and he's like, well, I can't, you know, defeat a human because I can't kill them. So like, great, I'll give them to Kate. Um, like that would make, uh, but so they even find, which I don't even know what this word means, a daguerreotype. A daguerreotype. There you go. Thanks. Which I'm so glad you brought it up is not a good daguerreotype because a daguerreotype is a photograph that is like silver printed on paper, and they just had a photocopy of a thing. So. Oh, sorry. Was- Spoken by your resident librarian <laughs> and archivist. <laughs> knew I knew I knew in my soul that you would know that you were Ian. I was like, one of them knows this word. I don't know what the fuck it is. <laughs> like I was gonna look it up, but I was like, ah, they'll probably know. Not to not to have lack of faith in you, Nicholas, but I know that we're the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so he has that, and he even shows her a picture where it's very clearly the woman she spoke to, and she's still like, Mm-mm, it's his fault. Um, which I guess I skipped over that because I'm chunking, like blocking these pieces together. Darla and a vampire are at the house. The vampire hits Darla, so it looks like Angel hit her, then kills the fake husband. Angel has been framed. I also have a question for the three of you that know the show better than I do. Do we? Is Kate's plot this season before she leaves that she's chasing him because of this? Or do we drop this after this episode? Uh, It's dropped. Yeah. Kate's the one who sets him free uh, to go back and kill all the lawyer or lock all the lawyers in the wine cellar with um, a turned Darla and Drew. So they, they, it's again, it's just, it's the creaky plot. It's there. There needs to be a tension. There needs to be tension. There needs to be a plot. The one thing that, that is frustrating for me about the Kate thing. And I, I can't remember if it was Nick or Yuian who said that they wasted the reveal in this one. Cause we know yeah. that Darla has been around the entire time, but the, there is the, the bit about angel just ran in and attacked them. How could he do that? Got me. Uh, when he busts down the door and uh, goes inside, I didn't notice that he wasn't invited in either the first yeah. time I watched the episode. That's a really clever, fun reveal in a way of showing, calling out Kate and proving her wrong in that scene. I really like that detail, yeah. but it's just wasted on just contrive. She's, you know, um, uh, Lonnie, my my wife who does chipperish, uh, uh, I think she coined the term conflict vending machine for Joyce, oh, where yeah. uh, Joyce in, in uh, Buffy is not a, she's not a f- real character. She's a conflict vending machine. She's there to dispense conflict, to keep the plot moving and all of that. The, the Scoobies, the core, are all real characters. They very rarely are just there to dispense conflict. Sometimes, but those typically are not standout episodes. And Kate, ever since her father died, has sort of just... She was there in the episodic case of the week episodes because it would have been very helpful, as you said, to have a police officer to move plots along so Angel could find out this about this guy and go and do this and so on and so forth. Now that it's becoming an arc show that is driven more by Angel's backstory and the relationship with the other characters and Wolfram and Harden, whatever they're realizing they don't really need her yeah, or that they don't know what to do with her. And um, you can really feel the weight of that in this one. So it's the conflict vending machine thing again. Yeah. yeah and with this season two uh, uh, on overall, 
Um, I think I think of season two as the transition from that episode of the week to yeah. the the season arc in the same way that you know the first like Buffy gets to do that in the first season because they just had that mini pilot and yeah. then there's like halfway through the season it kind of changes into a different show. Angel does that in the second season where that's why Kate just disappears from the second season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it's also why there are sort of like four B plots, but no real A plot. Yeah. You know, we have now we have uh Wolfram and Hart just being a bunch of jerks, but later we'll get Kortoth and then oops, we just forget about that. But by the third <laughs> season, that's when you start to get the like, okay, this is what the season about is about. Yeah. So yeah. all that is to say I have a lot of forgiveness for season two. It was just working some things out. Yeah. It's a process. We're all a process. <laughs> you can really sense that I, to me, I think Buffy finds its identity in prophecy girl, the scene in the library, yeah. Giles, oh, I'm yeah. 16 years old. I don't want to die, you know, and then it takes a little bit to, to get back to there, but by surprise and innocence, that's the show. Yeah. Um, is that drama, the, the real core at the center of this fantasy universe, um, and for me, uh, I, I think there was, I heard an interview with David Greenwald and he said they didn't have that on Angel until Tim Minear wrote, Are You Now or Have You Ever? And he mm. felt like that show, uh, that episode was sort of defined what Angel was, where they were just heavily experimenting and trying things. And that's why you get a couple of characters that come and go, the David Nabbits and so forth. And you don't get Fred until late in season uh, at the end of this season where yeah. things start to, to gel and, and work. But to Greenwald, that was the defining episode where they started to figure out what the identity was. Hmm. And that's a couple episodes into season two already. So hmm. that, it's, it's episode two. That's so weird. That episode two of season two is where they, I mean, I guess like, right. If you're like writing the shows and then you're like, Oop, that worked, but we already have these four episodes written. So we'll get back. To yeah. That. Cause I, I do You've think got three, scripts in the can. Yeah. I know? do think three is where it like, there is a core Scooby group and we gel better. And like, yeah, I think the like addition of Fred makes the cast a little bit more complete and then feels, I don't know. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Angel grabs Darla and brings her to the fucking <laughs> water tank place. Um, I just Before we move too far, I just okay. want to point out one thing that absolutely killed me. That was the writers doing the most. Okay. So when they get to that house where Darla is setting up Angel, the address that they give over the phone is like 1409 or whatever. Galloway. And ah. Galloway is where she <laughs> sires him. And in an episode with a flashback to like their early relationship, I was like, okay, guys, you're being real, real soft in some things and like letting a lot of things go on. But, but this one loud and clear. Got it. <laughs> I did not even notice that. Oh, um, we also missed two, two, two quick things. Um, we missed angel singing again. When he goes to Caritas. God, you're right. I don't even have notes on that, but he does go back to Caritas before he goes. And, and there's like that, that, that moment between him and Lorne with all the tension. Cause like Lorne doesn't want to help him in the way that angel wants it. I love that. But yeah, angel singing. And then also, which to me is it's super dark sided, but, Angel and Darla having sex in front of Drusilla. Oh God. In the convent. That's one of the most horrifying moments in the show. 
Yeah, I was going to mention that earlier when we were talking about, you know, like the whole thing with the mother figure and 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 what right. you know, yeah. Darla appearing in the dreams and it's technically sexual assault. In no way, shape or form am I defending this. But when people talk about like the stuff, the scene in season six of Buffy with Spike in the bathroom, mm. it's always something that I'm like, yes, it is horrifying, but also this is what the, like, we always hear them talking about how bad Angelus was and all of these things that he did. But I'm like, we never actually see that. And it's, yeah, it's a reminder, like, yes, you're still dealing with vampires who not just kill people, but like they rape people. They do all of, they, they assault yeah. people. They're, they're bad. So it's like, I don't know. It's uncomfortable to watch, but it does at least serve as a grounding reality for the show to me. Yeah. No, that's fair to, like, show how awful he was, because, like, and, like, he really, like, because even when, when they start, I was like, oh, Drusilla's already a vampire, and I was like, oh, she's not even a fucking vampire yet, so it's not even, like, she's also evil and enjoying the, like, evil chaos, she's, like, a scared human, and, like, oof. Right. This episode, this episode actually made me go back to my Buffyverse chronology spreadsheet with all the flashback episodes. Oh my god, I love um, it. But yeah, this is we see. B, this is the first time we're seeing Baby Drew. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not great. Um, <laughs> but uh, so we get. Oh, this- and the, I, I wanted to point out. Uh, Lauren says uh, in the scene, "I know you're not going to start anything here." Stands up and says to Angel, "You're a good boy." Yes, uh, and, and I just love the um, based on whatever he saw, uh, and again, it returns to sort of the Oedipus stuff. Is being able to see that relationship with uh, um, Darla uh, through the vision, and this is way off your path, and leave her be. But just the reference to "You're a good boy" again, the the patronizing or the uh, the infantilization of him is just it's interesting. <laughs> but we didn't need season four that's all <laughs> I, I, it's actually funny that you picked up on that um because one of the last things in this episode that darla says she says no matter how much of a good boy you are yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. that's yeah. i that's the one of the lines i wrote down because oh gosh, I don't- wait, hold on. did lauren are they are they trying to say that maybe lauren was picking up on the conversation he was about to have think so right or no it could be the way that they present what Lorne is actually able to do when he's reading people yes changes a lot Mm -hmm. he didn't refer to angel as a pastry so i thought it was very specific (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm i'm still never fully clear on what Lorne's power is because it's like he's an empath but also kind of tells the future and like also kind of knows everything about what's going to happen but then they do drop that by like Season four, I feel like that's not even like a thing. Lauren has the power of the MacGuffin. Yeah, there you <laughs> yeah. go. Which is fine. Um, also in that scene, since we're talking about it, I do like when Angel gets off the phone and he looks at that demon. He's like, what are you looking at? The demon who's just like at the bar having a drink. <laughs> um, but so, yes, this scene with Angel and Darla. Uh, my, the You just mentioned, Nick, my favorite line, which I wrote out. No matter how good a boy you are, God doesn't want you. But I still do, which I thought. Oh was like, God, so good! <laughs> oh, it hurts so bad, but it's so good. <laughs> and like, it's so good. Like he's choking her. She's putting a fucking crucifix against his chest. Like it's, it's, 
beautiful vampire writing. <laughs> They're cutting back and forth. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. It's a lot. There's also uh, a, um, I mean, I, 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 again, I don't know if this is interesting or not, but it's interesting to me. <laughs> the, um, there's a constant repetition of mirrors in this season. Uh, Angel, when in the opening episode, when they go into the gym, there's a shot of everyone looking into the mirror and, um, that's how the gym guy knows that, Oh, angel doesn't have a reflection, but angel looks into the mirror and sees the people he surrounds himself with. He sees Cordelia, he sees Wesley, and then he kicks the mirror down and saves the day. When the Swami talks to him and guys will be guys. Angel says, I don't have a reflection. And, uh, the Swami says, sure you do. You're reflected in the people around you. And so when angel, goes dark and doesn't want to see himself he fires the team so that he can do get away with doing whatever he wants to without having to see it but throughout the season two there's a structural uh darla's seduction of him has a bunch of parallel beats to his relationship with buffy in one of his dreams he's topless and uh she puts an ice cube on his chest roughly parallels buffy eating ice cream off his chest and i will remember you um there are a whole bunch of beats like that but the one that i love from this episode when she says god doesn't want you and shoves the um the cross against his chest is their first kiss in uh buffy season one episode seven angel oh yeah at the end of the episode, when they lean over and kiss and Buffy's cross burns him, um, there's a whole bunch of those beat for beat moments culminating with, you know, Angel and Buffy slept together and Angel lost his soul. Buffy and Darla sleep together and Angel finds his goodness again. So the whole, the, the beats between Darla and Angel throughout the season are played for as the inverse of Buffy and Angel. Buffy was trying to pull Angel towards the light, strong as fighting, and um, uh, Darla was trying to move Angel towards selfishness. Don't any of your team ever thank you? Um, but it's it, that part of it is subtle, but when you, uh, when you see all of those beats throughout the season, uh, Buffy says to Angel in innocence, was it me? Was I not good? And Darla says, to, yeah, Darla says to Angel in Epiphany, was it me? Was I not good? I used to do this professionally and I knew that that was great. So um, <laughs> I love it. It's not I, I don't find it to be overdone. I think like if it if they made it so obvious, um, it would be a little like on the nose. But it's just there enough. And the one in this one uh, in the water tower that I really love is the cross on the chest and him uh, and burning him that way. Yeah, I, I, I do. And you know what? I like realized the parallels, but I didn't realize them as much. Like you pointed out ones. I was like, oh, right. Yeah. Like this part. Um, and yeah, it's, it's weird because I, I remember this being longer, too. Like, I, I do think this scene goes on too long. But Julie Benz is a good enough actor that like, She's, I'm still like intrigued by what she's saying. It's just like, what are we doing? Um, yeah. And it's like, oh, I'm back and more than like, they are making out and then Angel stops the making out. And then like, then they're just kind of going back and forth. And while that makes sense for the characters, it doesn't make for like an interesting watch. But I think one of the things that this, this is actually why I really love genre shows as much as I do. 
Um, because no matter how wild the premise, they eventually get to some core thought or feeling that you can ident- identify with. And I think for me, that last scene, even though, yeah, it goes on for a bit, but, uh, you know, Angel is saying, uh, you know, we did everything together, but you never made me happy. And then she's like, oh, but the cheerleader did. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, how many times, like, I feel like that was a snapshot of a breakup I once had where, you know, it's like, oh, but it's the other woman? Okay, fine. And then you, like, say some really hurtful things that you can't take back. And, like, that's essentially what's happening here is they're having, like, the breakup argument again, um, except they're, you know, they've been having it for 150 years. Yeah, <laughs> which also somehow feels like uh, relatable as well. They've been having the same conversation for 150 years. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> um, Nicholas, what do you think of this scene? Mm, I I love this scene. To me, this when when I view this scene and and how Angel is talking to her about how she has a soul now. Um, I kind of take a step back and I, I examine how Angel reacted to when he got his soul back versus how Spike reacted when he got his soul back. And I feel like Darla, the, her behavior is hanging on to Angel because she's the only he's the only thing in this world since she's been brought back that feels familiar to her. And it's like her reaching out. How do I word it? <laughs> like we obviously learn that, you know, she eventually wants to get turned back into a vampire again, but it's just, you know, Angel ended up, well, he did a variety of things. I mean, he went to, what was it? Um, in the, in the Vegas episode when he says he was at, uh, uh, Elvis's wedding at some point before he ended up, you know, feeding on rats and stuff like that. Like Angel dealt with, with the, the soul in different ways than Spike did. Spike spent a couple of, you know, days crazy in a basement. Whereas Darla, I feel like, her reaction to getting her soul back and her behavior in this to me, I mean, I know obviously the writing is different because we got such limited screen time with her in season one of Buffy. But when I look at it, I interpret this as her reaching out because she's struggling with what to do with the soul. Mm, she I wants like the only thing that's familiar to her, which is angel, which is technically Angelus. So she's like, she's brought back and she can see angel, but this is not the angel that she knows. She wants Angelus back because she's struggling. She doesn't know what to do. Yeah. There's something though, like there's something to what you're saying where I like that you're drawing the analogy between when, when angel loses his soul and spike does, they both kind of lose it in, in very obvious ways. And what I love is that, Darla doesn't like she's been this is her as a human with the soul yeah and she just I don't know she's not going crazy you know it's, it says a lot about where she came from right that yeah. in the, or the like desperate circumstances she came out of 400 years ago that her at her worst is like oh you you don't love me anymore like it's a very yeah. human. Or it's she, it's a very human struggle that she's going through. Yeah, right. I, you know, I actually took a note specifically about that because Angel's like, "You're gonna feel bad," and I think I can't remember because I don't know Angel as well. She doesn't really feel bad, right? Like we don't. Like, she starts to fall apart uh, in Darla. The episode Darla. That's where she starts. Uh, is that my name? What is she starts to have a oh. a breakdown? Uh, 
now we're soulmates and there's shattered mirror, which is a repetition of the mirror motif and all of that. Um, and that's when she goes to angel and asks him to turn her, um, or rather he, he, Wolfram and Hart set up the fake execution scene so that angel rescues her. Right. And she, uh, shows angel her neck and says, turn me, which is a repetition of, uh, Angel and Buffy's fight in season one where Buffy walks up to him and as an act of faith shows him her neck and says, go ahead. And he doesn't do it. So she's Buffy does that to show Angel that he has power over the circumstances. Darla does that to try and get him to turn her and and to lose himself. But it's I that that's bringing that up is a wonderful catch. It's a little weird how the soul returning works it's a little indiscriminate between darla uh spike and angel angel is immediately crying and distraught darla apparently goes the whole summer being darla (laughs) that the previous darla (laughs) yeah the uh i I think i brought that up in in uh the video that i did about it in the comments that people had canon was well darla had been dead for three or four months uh, or or a couple of years rather at that point. So that's a long nap ma- for somebody who's just like five hundred years old. Yeah. So the uh, the soul returning thing probably worked differently on her than it would have on Spike and Angel. I mean, I I do feel like as much as I can't stand even talking about this, I do feel that that's probably why people get so like circular in their fucking arguments about Angel versus Spike. Because the soul is like very not well, like what, the, like soul is very like nondescript conscience, um, right. and like you know, like you said, Ian, it's like with Darla it took her a whole summer. With Spike, he goes kind of like you know, he loses his mind. With Angel, he's just crying, and it's like, which is it? Which but what does the soul do to you? Like, okay, I, think it, it, all, it, I think it's all true. Like all of those things can be true at one time, and it, I, the thing that I take away from this is. Uh, Angelus had a family. Spike was sort of a bumbling person, but he was still part of a community. She was like a young prostitute who the entire community shunned and then tried to kill. So like the point is she like her soul was broken before she ever became a vampire. Yes. And you know what? I mean, I know we're not on that episode, but that's what I fucking love about her flashback. When she's sired, she gives no fucks. Yeah. He's just like, oh, you're a priest. You should have come earlier, whatever. Like, (laughs) and I love that. She's like dying in bed, but it's still like, oh, fuck you. I don't care. Like, that's the energy I love and I want to uh, emit. (laughs) Well, and all all three of them have uh, mitigating circumstances. Uh, Angels is the most straightforward. Darla has been dead for a couple of years and Spike uh, ends up in the basement with the the first evil torturing him psychologically for yeah uh who knows how long so it, it's actually it's a tough comparison but that's what we're here to do <laughs> <laughs> you know mention mentioning how her soul was kind of broken or fractured even before she got turned into a vampire that kind of reminds me like my favorite moment with Julie Benz as Darla is when she is pregnant and they're on the rooftop and she's talking about how she's sharing the soul with the baby and she breaks down crying and she like basically saying like i've never in both my afterlife and when i was alive i've yeah. never experienced something like this 
Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's like the first moment, even before she was turned, that's the first moment that actually feels truly human. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like, yeah, I mean that in hindsight, I feel like that does really support the re- why she behaves the way she does over the course of this season as the soul starts to affect her because obviously as we've discussed the the soul within the Buffy verse does, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense sometimes. Like I, I don't feel like they ever really explain why Spike's personality doesn't really seem to be that much different. Whereas Angel develops an entire split personality. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's to match his completely different Irish and or not Irish accents. <laughs> <laughs> and jealous and jealous is just the, the least consistent of the bunch. Is he Hannibal Lecter? Is he the Joker? Is he some scummy 20-year-old shitty boyfriend? It just it changes uh, indiscriminately. Oh, yeah. Even Angelus in season two of Buffy versus season four of Angel, almost, yeah. like to me, seem like two different characters. Yeah, yeah. other than like, quote-unquote, evil. Like, that's like... Right. Um, I, I will say, though, James Marsters did say on Slayerfest 98 um, that he always played Spike with a soul. Like he said, he o- he cheated and he always played Spike as like being like <laughs> lovelorn. And like he always saw Spike as having a soul. Um, I mean, granted, the writing also was there. But like, you know, he said to him, Spike was madly in love with Drusilla. Spike was in love with like Spike did feel love. He did feel all these things that like they're not supposed to feel because they're evil vampires with no souls. Um, well, I it, it's, I don't think the show suggests that angels or angels that uh, vampires can't love. Right. I think Buffy adopts that perspective as a coping mechanism because of what Angelus does to her at the end of season two. Mm-hmm. If vampires can love, then what Angelus did to her is even more unforgivable, even with angel, having a soul but if if vampires can't love then that's a clear dividing line for her between sold angel and unsold angelus but it's uh, i love drew's line in uh can't remember the the, crush thank you um we can love just not wisely um i think that is a beautiful encapsulation of the way that that um the consuming sort of selfish version of love that that they are capable of for each other and that, how that metamorphosizes into my one of my favorite speeches in the series when spike says it has nothing to do with me i love what you are how you try yeah. Yeah. you know um it has nothing to do with me that's that's he is now capable of the the kind of love that he wasn't before yeah yes anyway i'm sorry <laughs> no no, no. Um, well, this is just you you made me realize that i think the the metaphor that sits with me or that resonates with me the most is that vampires are just people who haven't gone to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> AKA men. <laughs> yeah. I, cause like Darla is hurt when he says he never loved her. So, but moving to the end, because again, we breeze by he's just there and I don't understand how he's just there. Like he's back at the hotel. We don't wrap anything up. Right. Yeah. Really, nothing got done. Yeah. The, the other big, the other big problem with this uh, season is what is Wolverman Hart's plan? <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, there's a couple of times where the plan seems to just go out the window, and this is one of the first times where the plan seems to go out the window. But then, you know, the the, the uh, what's his name, uh, Lindsay's boss, Holland. 
Holland is continually uh, reassuring, like, there's a plant. And then Holland dies in a wine cellar. You know, like, really? That was the plan? What is the plan? Uh, You know, what are you trying to accomplish this season? From Wolfram and Hart's perspective, I don't think there is one. It's conflict to just keep things moving. And because I love the dramatic core enough, it's like, okay, fine. That's, yeah. uh, I'm all right with that. But um, yeah, wait, there are, so there are a number of times. I have a question because I, you're right. Helen does get chilled in that fucking wine cellar. Yep. But isn't there another old white dude that then becomes a the boss and gets his head chopped off? Yeah. Diet Linwood. Holland. Oh. <laughs> What's his yeah, name? Linwood. Nicholas? Linwood. Linwood. Oh, okay. In my head, I've just seen Holland die twice. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't know if that's right. Because oh, Linwood, Holland, Linwood is far worse for me. Oof. Um, Holland, Holland uh, Holland's wonderful. The reason I remember Holland the most is because he played uh, the only couple I really gave a shit about on Lost, which was Rose and Bernard. Yeah. And like that, that was like the sweet when Rose reunited with him, I think was the hardest I ever cried on Lost. Like I was just so happy that this sweet old couple was still kicking. They were <laughs> fine. Like, um, but that's what I. That's why I remember him more. The other guy, I can't even picture his face. I'm just picturing. So is Holland <laughs> the one that takes Angel on a tour of Wolfram and Hart, or is it the other one? Uh, Lila takes Holland. Lila takes Angel on a tour of Wolfram and Hart at the end of four. Holland is the one in Reprise that takes the Angel elevator. on the elevator ride okay. down to the home office. Okay, okay. Um, so it is him. Yeah, and I mean, it, where it ends up is that all of this was Jasmine, and I think. As much as that feels like a um, a massive retcon when it occurs, there are actually enough, like this episode being so Oedip- uh, so much about Oedipus, and then uh, uh, What's-His-Nuts in season four coming along, you know, like, it kind of works. Darla in uh, two episodes is going to be sitting in the courtyard and she sniffs a flower and says, mm, Jasmine, it blooms at yep. night. Mm-hmm. You know, um, which is blew my mind when I realized we're three seasons. Like, that's so early at this point. So, um, you know, mm-hmm. I, 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 I did an interview with Tim, uh, my near, who said, like, no, most of the stuff was not pre designed. They uh, looked for threads and then uh, connected them as they went along. You know, they start the season with a general overall sort of uh, idea of how they wa- the direction they want things to go. But, you know, if it ends up where it ends up, they're just kind of lucky. But it doesn't matter. It still feels the more I watch it, it still feels close enough that that Jasmine kind of works for me. Yeah, no, I mean, I can accept the like. I didn't realize there's a scene where Darla says Jasmine. I don't love the Jasmine arc. <laughs> I am curious how I feel about it for the podcast. Because there's, there's been things for Buffy and Ian, I don't, I feel like we've talked about this where like when you're reviewing it for like whatever, it's like suddenly you might feel a little different about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's the watching for entertainment view and there's the critical uh, watch view. And, you know, I, I think that most of the time something just needs to pass the muster of the entertainment view. It doesn't need to pass the critical view. But watching these things critically, I started kind of what they were shooting for reveals itself and it becomes more interesting um in in the view that happens for me a lot more with angel than it does um for buffy i'm not saying the jasmine uh skip retcon stuff worked perfectly but it worked 
it the the more I watch the show, it works better for me than it did on the first run through. That's agreed. That's that's fair. So yeah, we get the wrap up. Cordy was worried he might. They were worried he might be in jealous, but he's fine. Doesn't really tell them anything. He just says he's like ready for whatever Wolfram and Hart is throwing at him and closes the door. Um, I get annoyed at him brushing them off, but I know you're supposed to be, so I don't mind it because it's like, yes, that is the point. You're supposed to. He's being shitty. Um, but okay, we're at the end. Favorite scene, uh, Nicholas. <sighs> favorite scene, favorite. Um, I think my favorite scene in this episode is when he sees her in the promenade. Uh, Nick. Um, my favorite scene is always going to be a flashback. I'm a sucker for a period piece. <laughs> Ian? Favorite and most horrifying. Um, uh, because I, I can't think of the actress's name who plays Drew right now, but she is wonderful in the scene in the church. Yeah. Uh, it's harrowing. And like we said, it's it's interesting to see some reality brought to some of the horrifying things that they reference Angel did. Um, in the show, it, it, it is heightening in a weird way. Um, even if it's very hard to watch. Yeah. Um, I think my favorite, I don't know if that's my favorite scene, but my favorite moment is when Kate like asks them like, Oh, you're not going to help yourself. And Cordy and Wesley both at the same time, fold their arms. Like, fuck you. No, we're not. Yeah. Um, I love that. Uh, favorite outfit, Ian, (laughs) I know you hate this question, Ian. Uh, I forgot to make a note but i think cordy was wearing like a a, a blue shirt with like a, a sheer yes. sw- sweater number over the top of it and she looked like yeah, a million bucks it. yeah yeah i uh, thought that i thought that shirt kind of looked like the one miss calendar wears when she dies <laughs> but nick you were gonna say something <laughs> i was just anytime in the the i feel like you're guaranteed to see one sheer long sleeve shirt over one tank top um and i I live for it i look out for them i still style myself like it's 1999 in that exact way it's just now now that now it's mesh because i'm cool so what was that your favorite outfit as well oh my god yeah the navy the navy blue long sleeve sweater over (laughs) the white tank uh nick nicholas I'm torn between two of them. The first one is the first outfit that we see Cordelia in. It's got like uh, like polka dots or something on it. Yes, and she's got I like the, that one. the neck scarf. I love that. And the hoops and look so good on her. Potentially controversial, but I love the maid outfit. <laughs> <laughs> the yellow maid outfit. I am a horror for a maid outfit. Like I think of like Moira from American Horror Story season one. I love it. And plus I love the color yellow. So it was perfect for me. I mean, it's ridiculous, <laughs> but I love it. Um, I thought you were going to have the exact same two as me. Mine is I love Cordy in the red polka dot and I love the hoops um, and Darla in her red dress. Cause I like, like I just think of her. In yes. Her red dress. Um, all right, what grade do we give this episode, Nicholas? Um, I'm going to give this one a C plus. Ian? Uh, it's a B. Nick? I'm going to go B minus. All right, and I think I'm going to go C plus. Um, all right, everyone. Well, thank you for joining me. It's uh, we had. A, I feel like we, I was like, oh, this recording will probably be short because there's nothing to say about this episode. But I forgot there's like 85 different plots, so I guess there was a lot to say. Um, thank you all for joining me, Ian. It was nice to have you back. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Happy to be here. I'm glad we yeah. 
got something in the books. And uh, Nick's. I love that the two of you now have recorded together a lot with having to have the same name. Um, and if you like SlayerFest98, you can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can find us on all social media platforms at SlayerFestX98. You can find my personal accounts on all social media platforms at IanXCarlos. Ian, where can everyone find you and your channel? I like stumbled on the words. I was like, no, that's my name. I already said that. <laughs> I've... Uh... I think I've finally managed to stop using social media. So uh, at this point, it's just youtube.com slash passion of the nerd. I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wonderful. I recommend it to anyone who's thinking about doing it. Cut back. <laughs> How do you promo anything? I feel like I would get like no promo ever. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, well, yeah, it's tough. Speaking of not using social media, Nick, where can everyone find you? Because I know you also don't like using social wow, media. Wow, what a read. Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, um, personally, I'm mostly on Instagram, you, and you'll see me tagged in SlayerFest98 as Coco DeVoe, C-O-C-O-D-E-V-A-U-X. If you go there, you'll see the fact that this weekend I was on a flight so bad that the New York Post wrote about it. Yeah. Oh my god, I meant Ooh. to ask you about that. I was like, don't oh text god. her right now because it's, she's annoyed. She doesn't want to tell the story ten times. And I was like, remember to ask her that when you record. Uh, yeah, going to yeah. JFK to LAX. What a struggle. Anyway, um, that's personally. Um, but behind the scenes, um, I am at Geeks Out and at FlameCon. Um, and depending on when this goes out, um, I'll be doing an interview with Natasha Alterici uh, of Heathen Comics fame with uh, Vault Comics on at the end of this month. So, oh, nice for the Geeks Out podcast. Yeah, for the Geeks Out. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, and Nicholas, where can everyone find you and your videos? You can find me on YouTube, Patreon, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Nick Says Boo. Wow, that is so much faster when I do it that way. <laughs> it is. Listen, you got that branding down. Yeah, solid. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, we will see you next time. Bye.